Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to go ahead and have everybody stand up. Let me read this passage to you from the Sermon on the Mount. Um, If you need to catch up on the Sermon on the Mount, I think it's like around April 2016 in the Sermon Archives at the website. So we're picking it up where we left off. I give context and teaching all the way back so long ago. So we're just going to pick it up. I'm not going to really worry about uh, catching us up. We'll just pick it up right here, Matthew 6, starting in verse 1. And here's what it says. Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room. And shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in the secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Amen. You may be seated this morning. What a great, great passage. Hypocrites. Woo. Hypocrites. Boy, Jesus, he liked that word, didn't he? Hypocrites. And I, I feel like this is like one of people's favorite words when they start talking about church. Have you all ever heard this? I don't go to church because it's a bunch of Hypocrites. Hypocrites. uses it several times here. Don't be like the hypocrites. Um, what's interesting about this word is that it's a, it's a word that belongs to the theater. It's a word that be, belongs to the theatrical world of Jesus' times. It was not a derogatory word in Jesus' time. It just described an actor. If we, I think tonight's the Golden Globes or something like that, the awards assembly. You know, we, we, we look at our actors, we give them reward, awards for, for their performance, say it's an actor. Well, that's what, a, that's what a hypocrite was in Jesus' time. It was just an actor. 
somebody who played a part, who wore a mask. In ancient times, there usually usually was like a chorus on a stage, and they would sing, and the hypocrite would wear a mask and would respond to the choruses that would be sung. It was a good thing. It It was something that people did with their talents, with their abilities. They were hypocrites. They wore a mask. They played a part. And Jesus takes this word and creatively begins to use it in this imaginative way to capture a problem in the human condition. In fact, it's uniquely a Jesus word in the Bible. No one else uses the word hypocrite in all of the Bible except for Jesus, 17 times. And no doubt that was because he himself probably went to the theater. He probably went to a theater that was at a place called Sepphoris, which wasn't far from Nazareth. And he might have even built himself with his dad as a carpenter for Herod. And he probably sat there with a diversity of people in this city, Jews and Gentiles in that place. And there was a theater. He probably sat in the audience and he watched these actors on a stage. And he saw they were playing a part. And he thought in his mind, That is what religious people do. Religious people play a part. He's confronting the Pharisees. And he's saying to the Pharisees, to the religious elites of his day, you use your religion and you use the name of God to be up on a platform to get the praise of the people. You use your religiosity to garner for yourself You are playing a part. There's the outer shell of spirituality only so people will praise you and say, you're so spiritual. So when you give to the poor, you're not giving to actually help people. You're giving so other people will think that you're religious. When you pray out loud and you pray publicly, you're not praying to talk to God. You're praying to be impressive to people. When you fast, you're fasting in a way not to be fed by the Spirit of God, but by to show people how much you're willing to deny yourself for God so people will be impressed with you. Your focus is more about being on the stage and getting public opinion. Your identity is driven by what other people think of you. You want people to be intimidated by you. You want people to be impressed by you. You want people to envy you. You want people to think that you're really great. You are, Jesus is saying, a hypocrite. You Pharisees. You religious people. And you know what we do at Crosspoint? We go, I love it. I love Jesus. Don't you love Jesus? That's right, Jesus. Go after those religious people. Go after those self-righteous moralists who look down their nose at everybody through their religion and their garb and their, and their, and their props and, and their robes and their, their hats and their, their holy water and their TV shows and their, their TV books and their, their religious religiosity. Go after them, Jesus. Call them a hypocrite because that is what they are. They care nothing for actual people. They care only for public opinion. Hmm. But when we think about it, Jesus' problem with the Pharisees and with the religious elite of his day was that they were reflecting a human problem in culture and in the world. Jesus and Paul looked at the religion of their day and said, you're worldly. You're like the pagans. 
You're like the surrounding culture. You're no different in your religiosity than people are in their irreligiosity. You're no different on your religious platforms than godless people are on their pagan platforms. Your religious stage is no different than the secular stage of all of humanity. Jesus is saying to all the religious people who look religious, you're no different than the irreligious because what is it that we experience in our irreligious world? Hypocrisy. A life that is lived for the, to impress other people. A life that is lived so that people will respect us. Do you see what's happening? In his book, Dallas Willard, a book called uh, The Divine Conspiracy, he said he calls it the respectability trap. That human beings, all of us, it doesn't matter if you're churched or unchurched. It doesn't matter if you go to church or pray or fast or whatever it is you do. Everything we do is calculated to get respect from other people, true or false. Oh, now we're about to preach. Can I get an amen? Ooh, we're about to go now. You have to jump out of those chairs today. You see... We, we look at the Pharisees and we go, well, I don't want to ever be a Pharisee. But you see, in our hearts, we are all Pharisees. This is the human problem. The human problem is that we're living for the glory of human beings and not for the glory of God. We put on whatever mask we have to wear so that we can feed off of other people's response to us. I know this. I'm a preacher. I'm a pastor. This is one of the most dangerous positions to be up, up on the stage. The lights are on me. I've got a Bible. Am I going to preach to be impressive to you, or do I preach for the glory of God? Can I be honest with you? I fail more times than I succeed because I'm a sinner. Because I need to be needed. How about you? I need to be needed. And if I'm not needed, I need you to know that I don't need you. Do you know that? I don't need you. Because I don't need people. Sherry, Sherry always jokes around with me. She t we like The Incredibles. How many of y'all like The Incredibles? Isn't that a great movie? And Mr. Incredible, you know, he works alone. Go home, buddy. I work alone. Sherry's like, you're like that sometimes. You, you act like you don't need anybody. You want people to know that you don't need anybody. See, I do need you to know that I don't need you. <laughs> this is a human problem. This is, this is original sin. This is, this is Adam and Eve. This is, this, is what, this is what we do as human beings. We get up on the stage of life, and we try to make sure everybody sees us exactly like we want to be seen. Dare I say it, I'm a hypocrite. I'm an actor. Shakespeare was right. All the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances, and one man in his time plays many parts, his acts being seven ages, at first the infant muling and puking in the nurse's arms. That's life. Everyone is playing a part, living for public opinion. And can I say to you,
That in this passage that we've read, Jesus offers us an alternative to living for public opinion. In fact, he offers us the alternative of living for private devotion in the presence of our Heavenly Father. That the fuel of our lives, that our soul would be fed in the devotion and relationship with our Heavenly Father, so that when we do go out into that world, so that when we do go out and we have our relationships, we're not dependent upon other people, but we're dependent upon God. Did you see it? He says in Matthew 6, go there, Matthew 6, and verses 3 and 4, look for this private devotion. He says, but when you give to the needy, Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Again, look at verse 6. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Go to verse 18. He says that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus is is saying to us, this is what we need. We need to not allow our identity to be shaped by all of the technology and the tools of public respectability, that, that our identity and our sense of satisfaction does not come from the response of other people, that, 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 that our, our life does not come down to how people see us, but that our life comes down to our secret, private relationship with our Heavenly Father. That there would be a secret relationship in the, in the quiet of a storeroom, in the quiet of a closet, in the, in the quietness of fasting and feeding on the Spirit of God, that God the Father would become more than enough for us in our satisfaction, that we would replace public opinion with private devotion as our identity-shaping fuel. It doesn't matter if you're religious or irreligious. That's what Jesus comes to give to us. And he wants to motivate us. He, he wants to come and, and he wants to motivate his disciples. This is a sermon for his disciples. For, for men and women who uniquely belong to him. He's speaking into his disciples' lives. We, we exist to make more and better disciples for Jesus. And he is speaking to us and he's saying, I want my disciples to hear me motivate them to get into the presence of the Heavenly Father. And to be fueled by him. And to be satisfied by him. So that our life does not come down to public opinion. I was reading a book on leadership by a guy by the name of Brad Lominick. He wrote a book called H3 Leadership. He was talking about leaders and their platforms and their stages. And he said this, quote, we must build who we are off the stage, behind the stage, beside the stage, before we start thinking about getting on the stage. What a true thing for all of us. 
And so we ask ourselves, well, okay, well, how does Jesus motivate us to replace public opinion with private devotion? He does it in three different ways, all right? Let me give it to you, three different ways. The first way he motivates us to get into the presence of the Father and not live for the public opinion of other people is he gives us a warning. He gives us a warning. Go back to Matthew chapter 6 and look at verse 1. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Verse 2, thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the street, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Go down to verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Go down to verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. You see this repetition? Between praying, giving to charity, and fasting, he says, if you're doing it to be respectable, if you're living your life to be respected by other people, if you're living your life to be impressive to other people, you'll get that reward. And it's likely people will be impressed with you. It's likely people will say, wow, they give to charity. Wow, they really know how to pray out loud. Wow, they re they're never happy because they're always fasting. Look at how depressed they are. They must be spiritual. Look at how gloomy they are. Look at how miserable they are for God. Why, my goodness, that's, that's so impressive. And you know what? Can I tell you? It feels good when people think you're spiritual, true or false. Oh, it feels good. People think, ooh, Josh is a very spiritual man. Look at him up there dressed up like he does. <laughs> Listen to him preach. And it feels good to be liked. It feels good to be respected. It feels good for the opinion of other people to get on Facebook and to really like and say, oh, you're so important. And they respond and they give you the thumbs up and there's pictures and emoticons and, and smiley faces and hearts and, and whatever. They, now they've got stuff that like talks and stuff. I don't even know what's happening out there. You know what I mean? And everybody's liking you and everybody's responding to you. And you know what? It feels good. It's intoxicating. It's seductive. And you know what Jesus is saying? If you're living for that, you'll get it. And that's all you'll get. That's it. Those moments of respectability, those moments of other people thinking you're just the greatest thing in the world, if that's what you're living for, that's what you'll get. And that's all you'll get. And in light of eternity, can I tell you, it amounts to squat. Right? It's a drop in the bucket. Jesus says, here's the warning. You live for the glory of people, you'll get it. But you'll miss out on the glory of God. You live for the reward of other people's love, that's what drives you. Then you'll miss out on the greatest love you could ever experience, which is the love of your heavenly father. 
If you prioritize the love of human beings over the love of God, you'll get it. You can achieve it, but that's all you'll ever achieve. Jesus says there is a reward for those who are willing to go into the private room and their relationship with God. And what I love about this warning is Jesus is not telling us to not seek love. He's not saying to quelch our need for affection, to quelch our need to be accepted. He is not saying to us like religion does. Religion says get rid of all your passions, get rid of all your needs for rewards. Jesus is not saying that. He's simply redirecting it and saying that our biggest problem is not that we seek a reward. Our biggest problem is that we seek a second-rated reward. Jesus is telling his disciples, go after the reward, go after affection, go after being liked and loved, but make sure that your love that you're seeking comes from your God and your maker, not from human beings. That's what he's saying. I love that about Jesus. Many people are a little uncomfortable with the idea of living our spiritual life for a reward from our father, but Jesus clearly tells us to do that. C.S. Lewis says this, quote, We must not be troubled by unbelievers when they say that this promise of reward makes the Christian life a mercenary affair. There are different kinds of reward. There's the reward which has no natural connection with the things you do to earn it and is quite foreign to the desires that ought to accompany those things. Money is not the natural reward of love. That is why we call a man a mercenary if he marries a woman for the sake of her money. But the marriage is a proper reward for a real lover, and he is not a mercenary for desiring it. The proper rewards are not simply tacked on to the activity for which they are given, but are the activity itself in the consummation. In other words, our hearts were made to be loved, but loved by God. And if we seek that love in another place then it will fall flat. Jesus is saying, live your life to be accepted by the Father. And how do we get accepted by the Father? By knowing that Jesus died for our sins on the cross, by knowing that he defeated death, that we're justified because of the works of Jesus and that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And what is the reward he's talking about? The reward is knowing and experiencing that love in our hearts and in our life. That is the reward. Your father will reward you in secret. Can you, can, you ima- can you imagine living a life where you can go out there and not need to be needed and yet be helpful because you're already satisfied in the love of the father? But Jesus is warning us. You will miss out. But not only does he warn us, he gives us an insight. And this is the great insight. The great insight that Jesus gives to us to motivate us to replace public opinion with private devotion is the insight of the fatherhood of God. If I could force you to circle things in your Bible, I would, make you for, I would force you to circle all the times he says, Your father. Go to your father in secret. He keeps calling God your father. That is a radical thing. 
Jesus is saying that God Almighty, the creator of heavens and earth, the God who breathed the breath of life into the original human being, Adam, the God who separated the waters from the land, the God who who came down in human flesh, this God can be your father. That God is a loving and good God. And not only the fatherhood of God, but then he adds this to that insight. He adds that we can be the children of God, that we can be in the family of God. Not only does he say your father, but how does the Lord's prayer start out? Our father. He gives us family. He gives us brothers and sisters. He gives us community. He gives us each other. He gives us marriage and kids and church and and people in our life that are under this family, this adopted family of God, that, that we can come and experience God as our father. This is radical. That God is not just some kind of Bible bureaucrat saying, I wonder if they're going to be good boys or bad boys today. That, that God is this loving father who adopts children who are far from him through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the son of God who came to give the father to us as our God. Can you imagine? Can you imagine Can anybody in this world replace the fatherhood of God? Could all the money in the world add up to the blessing of knowing that God is my father and I'm in his household and I'm a part of his family and I'm going to live in his house for the rest of my life and into eternity? Your father. Jesus is like, why are you getting up on the stage and being a hypocrite? Why are you putting on masks so that people will like you? Why are you living for the respectability of the world? Why are you living for the opinion of the world when you have God as your father? Jesus is saying that's crazy talk. When you can go into God's presence and go, you're my father. Jesus is giving us an insight of theology that's never been heard before. It's it's the most revolutionary theology in the world that the transcendent, holy, righteous God can be imminent and close and in us and with us and for us. He can be God with us because of the work of Jesus and God can be our Father in our closet. You can go into your closet with the coats and shirts and boots and in my house in central Illinois, you got scarfs and gloves and you got all kinds of snow and salt off the boots that I got from the driveway. And you can go into that closet with the salt and the gloves and the, and the coats and the boots and you can, you, can, you can go there and you can meet God. That can be your church. Can I get an amen? You don't need a cathedral or a temple. You don't need a synagogue or a mosque. You could just go into your closet in Jesus' name and say, God, my Father is with me right now. You can be driving in your car. Hallelujah. I'm preaching now. You'll be driving down in your car all by yourself, and you can call out to God and say, you are my Father because Jesus died to earn that for us. Woo, that's an insight. That is motivational. What other human being or respectability or whatever anybody thinks, who could replace that kind of revolutionary idea? The love of God, your Father, our Father in heaven, is with us in Jesus' name.
I went, I went home to Oklahoma to see my parents. And I spent time with my parents and my brother Sean and saw my family and my friends and and my father's living room is a massive fireplace. Hallelujah. And we're not talking about the kind of fireplace where you put, you know, like flip on a switch and it goes, like we're talking about a real fireplace. It requires really big wood and it requires like manly work to get the fire going. Can I get a hallelujah? And I'd go outside and get big wood, and I'd bring it into that fireplace, and I'd put that wood in that fireplace, and I'd get out, and I'd start doing my manly thing, my masculine start a fire thing, because I want you to respect me as a man. Anyways, I'd light that fire, and I'd take that poker, and I'd stoke that fire all night. I could, I could look, I don't know about you, I could look into a fire for hours if it's a real fire. If it's real wood and real fire and you get that real smell and sparks and things are happening, it gets kind of dangerous, I could look into that forever. It's kind of disturbing to my wife. But anyways, <laughs> but there's the warmth of that fire. And what that always reminds me of is family because when I, from the time I was this little, well, from the time I was this little, we've always had a fireplace with real wood and real fire. And for me, that's family. That's family. Sitting by the fire, stoking that fire. And you know what Jesus is saying to us? You can sit by the fire and the warmth of a relationship with God because he's your father. He's given you a living room. He's given you a fireplace. And your life can be warm there and it can be satisfied there. You can go to your father in secret. You can go to that fireplace and you can spend devotional time with him and be warmth in his presence. You can, you can be warm because now God is the warm, holy, sovereign God who's now your father. And the question for you and I is, will we live for that private devotion or are we going to settle for the stage, the cold world stage of performance and expectations and I wonder what they think of me and being a people pleaser or being codependent upon everybody else or whatever it is that we're tempted to do. We could either live on that platform or we could go into the presence of the Father and be warmed by his unconditional love for us in Jesus Christ. That's the insight. That's the insight. See, Jesus wants us to replace public opinion with private devotion. Well, the final thing he gives us to motivate us to, republic, to replace public opinion with private devotion is he gives us the measure. How can I measure how I'm doing with this? Now, see, this, this is what I like about Jesus. He doesn't leave things in the abstract, does he? It's not like, oh, I wonder how you'll feel about this spiritually. And you can kind of go out there and guess on where you're at in your relationship with God. Like Jesus is super helpful. He wants us to know exactly where we're at. To be able to measure how we're doing in our private devotion with God. And he gives us these, these kind of measuring places, which is really great. Because even if we've fallen short, it's awesome. Because of grace, we can now start working on this. But go back. Let me read it to you one more time. Go back to Matthew 6 and verse 1. Now this is where it gets... I was always confused about this for the longest, longest time. It takes me a long time to understand things because I'm a little slow. 
But look at verse 1. He says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Now, the reason why that was confusing is because in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 14, and we do have enough time, go there real quick. Matthew 5, verse 14, actually verse 16, pardon me, sorry. Jesus says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I'm, conf- are you conf- I'm confused. On the one hand, he's saying, let your light shine before others so that they can see that that you belong to God, so that they can see good works, so that they can see in your life the life of God. But then he tells us, it seems like, in verse chapter 6, verse 1, he says, he says, don't do things so that other people will see you. But here's the thing. He's talking about the motive. Everybody say motive. Don't do things for the purpose of or in order that people will be impressed with you. Do you see the difference? It's not, it's not never pray in public or never that nobody can ever know that you're fasting or that you know, nobody can ever know that you give to charity. That would be really bad. He's saying, what is your heart motive? Check your motives. Are you giving to the poor so other people will think you're really great? Or are you giving to the poor because you genuinely want a human being to be fed? Are you praying so that other people will say, oh, well, they pray all the time? Or do you pray because you want to have a conversation with God? Is your motive for fasting to, be, to feed on the satisfaction of the Holy Spirit? Or is your motive for fasting to let other people know how, how much you're willing to suffer? It's a motive issue. It's not you can never let anybody know that you pray or never pray publicly. Or we, now we can't pray anymore in public at our churches. Obviously, that couldn't be the case because then the whole book of Acts would have to be taken out of the New Testament. That's all they did was do public prayers. The issue is a motive issue. But then he gives us something even more helpful than that. And I really like this. He says, verse 3, But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Now, this is the real measure. When you give to the needy, Something you're usually going to do with your right hand, you pull out your wallet with your right hand. See what I'm saying? Now, unless you're left-handed. And, I mean, Jesus is not trying to discriminate against all left-handed people. But typically, people are right-handed. Nothing against left-handed people at all. But you usually do this. And he's saying, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Now, what's he mean by that? He means that it's such a natural extension that it's almost, it's almost, un, it's almost a, a lack of self-conscious giving. It's, it's a natural extension of your devotion and spirituality. It's very natural for you to help another human being because you very naturally want them to be helped. You're not, your left hand's not going, I wonder how I can manipulate impress, you know, kind of an impressive demeanor by how I give. It's, it's a very extension. You don't, almost don't even overthink it. You just you give because it's a natural thing. See, that's a measure. Is your charity, is your generosity to church or to poor people, is that a natural, cheerful kind of extension of your faith, or are you overthinking it? Same thing with prayer. Same thing with fasting. It's a natural extension. That's a measure of how you're doing with your devotion. Is your devotional life fueling 
And it's an inside-out kind of transformational process to where there's an extension of the life of Jesus flowing from your life. And, and if I'm honest with you today, if I do the real measurement, then I still got work to do. How about you? But the grace of God allows me to continue to grow, and I can ask the Holy Spirit, make all of my natural spiritual disciplines a natural extension of my faith and my relationship with Jesus. The illustration I thought of with this is... Um, Yesterday, I took my daughter out to drive in a parking lot. Right, we took the minivan and went to ICC, a big parking lot. And there was snow and ice, and it was really fun. And uh, Ashley, she's going to start driver's ed, and she's 15, and she's going to drive. And I love doing this. This is really fun. It's dangerous, but it's fun. And I like danger. I'm kind of like Maverick and Top Gun. I like danger. You know what I mean? And so we... So we go to ICC, and we go into the parking lot, and I put her in the driver's seat. We strap on the thing. And, of course, the way I teach driving is like, well, just turn left. And, or, you know, park, park in the, you know, just park in that spot right over there. Park in between the orange lines. You know what I mean? She's like, how do I do that? I don't know. Just do it. Just park. Well, the biggest problem we had is when she's backing out, she doesn't know which way the steering wheel should go to get the rear end of the, of the van going this way and the other way. And she goes, how do I know which way to turn, to turn the steering wheel? And I was like, I don't know. Just do it. You know what I mean? Like, just let your hands do it. And you know what I had to do? I had to think about the fact that every detail of my driving, I don't think about when I'm driving. I don't know which way the steering wheel goes to turn it this way or that. I just do it. You know, if I want, if I want to turn out this way, I just turn. If I want it to turn out this way, I just kind of back up and turn it that way. I don't think about it. I didn't know how to instruct her. And so I had to tell her, let me drive real quick. <laughs> let me do it real quick. And then I'll tell you how to do it. So I had to get in and figure out and think through how I do things because driving is a natural extension now in my life. I don't have to think about that stuff. And Jesus is saying there's a relationship with God that's available where God does such a great work in your heart that as you grow in him, you'll start just giving charitably without even thinking about it. You'll start praying without even knowing you're praying. You'll start having conversations, brief, frequent, and intense conversations with God. You won't even know how many you've had in a day. You won't be able to count like, did I talk to God three times a day, ten times a day? I don't know. I know I talked to God. You'll be able to fast and know when to fast, when not to fast, how many times to fast. It's not like, how many times a year should I fast? Every? You'll just know when it's time to fast for a couple of days. Because your relationship and the warmth of that devotion, that fireplace of being warmed by the Father, will begin to guide you naturally, cheerfully, into a natural life of devotion and spiritual disciplines. But you got to get into the private presence of God. Jesus is saying, live in the presence of God. Now, how? See, Jesus motivates us through a warning, through insight, through the measure. Replace public opinion with private devotion. How? What's the real secret to devotion? And the answer to that is the Lord's Prayer. And we will talk about that next week. But you see what's happening now. But to give you something to live, live on this week, 
replace public opinion with private devotion. And for a week, and maybe this could be a great thing for 2018, I am going to live the rest of this year for the audience of one. I'm going to live for the opinion of God alone. Is it dangerous to live for the opinion of only God? Is it dangerous to live for the audience of one? No, because God is love. You're not going to hurt yourself or anybody else if you live only and solely for God. Is it limiting to live only for God? Absolutely not, because he'll do more in you than you could ever ask for or imagine. Is it crushing to live for an audience of one for the rest of this year? Absolutely not, because Jesus died for your sins. He defeated death. You're living in grace. You're forgiven forever. Jesus paid the full debt, so you don't even have to worry about being perfect. You can live for the audience of one, even in a broken state, because Jesus died for you and defeated death. Make it your ambition to live for an audience of one, to live for the opinion of God and God alone. And get into his presence, and we'll talk about that next week 